At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Inspire to Fire podcast. My name is Chris and I'm your host. And if you haven't listened to season one, I strongly encourage you to check that out. Season one is filled with fantastic guests and I even start off with a little bit of my own financial independence journey at the beginning. So if you're new, check out season one and going along with the theme of fantastic guests, today we have Tanya Hester. She is an author of two books, Work Optional and Wallet Activism. Wallet Activism is the book that we're going to be diving into in this episode. And she also blogs over at Our Next Life. That's where I've actually found her. So she's been an inspiration and she's a fantastic writer. So I'm super excited to get into those topics. But before we get into that, I'd love it if you would subscribe to the show if you're new or you haven't subscribed yet. That'd be a great way to get notifications and stay on top of the episodes that are coming out, which should be coming out weekly for season two. You can also follow me on Instagram at inspire to fire And you can also check out the website, inspiredfire.com. I've got a lot of great things on the website, a fire calculator that's free. We also talk about barista fire, coast fire, the popular fat fire. So go ahead and check it out. I've got a lot of resources and interesting articles up on the website. So I thought I can also update you guys on my financial independence journey. And I thought that that would be good because the last time uh, I put out an episode, it was about two years ago or a year and a half ago. So I think it was going to be a good time to let you know what's been going on in my life. So uh, I had a baby and he's one years, one and a half years old. And so that was amazing and interesting and hectic all at the same time. Um, I also have continued uh, stuffing my retirement account. So I've taken advantage of the 401ks and 457 plans, which we're going to discuss in a later episode as well. They're super, super interesting and, and helpful for financial independence. And I've been on the financial independence journey for about four years. During that time, I've been able to pay down all of my student loans. So I'm debt free in terms of student loans. The only debt I have remaining is the mortgage, which is at a 2.6% interest rate on a 15 year fixed term. So I was paying a little bit extra towards the mortgage each year, but 
seeing that there was a correction in the market of May 2022, I figured I can put some of that extra money into the market. I think that eventually over time, I'd make a better return than 2.6%. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm currently around the, I definitely hit COSFI, which was super exciting just to, just to know that uh, at the age of 65, my retirement is fully funded even without contributing anything at this point. If you don't know about COSFI, again, just go ahead and take a look on my website and I've written a whole article. It's it's pretty great. Um, but now I'm actually approaching something called Barista Fire, which is almost in, at the point where my passive income is giving me enough supplemental income where I can roll back to part-time or take a hiatus, maybe a uh, one-year mini retirement. Um, so I've got a lot of options and currently I'm still just going ahead and working and taking advantage of my accounts, but I think I may switch to investing a little bit more in taxable accounts and building a little bit more of an emergency savings. And the reason for that is I'm, I'm realizing as I go through the journey that uh, I'm still about five years away from full financial independence. And so I don't have a lot of flexibility until that time. And I think I'd like a little bit more flexibility. So investing in a taxable account and having more in just a high yield online savings account will be able to give me that flexibility and comfort throughout that time to start enjoying life a little bit more today. And so that's been a focus of mine as well. And uh, yeah, so a couple other tidbits. I've gone to a few countries or I will be going. I went to Peru earlier this year. I've taken multiple trips to New York and I have a planned trip to Portugal later in the year. So it's all very exciting. And I feel like I'm starting to realize that I need to enjoy the journey just as much as the destination. Um, lastly, I think I might be going to FinCon 2022, September 2022 in Orlando. That's a possibility. So if anybody decides they want to go out there, email me at questions at inspiredafire.com and uh, we can definitely meet. It'll be great. So anyways, with that, now you know a little bit more about my journey and I hope that you enjoy that. I hope that you don't mind me sharing my numbers or my personal uh, milestones with you guys. And I hope that you know, we can do this together. We're on the journey together. And as you listen to the episodes, I'm on my fire journey and so are you. So hope you're learning as well. So with that, let's get into the episode with Tanya Hester. And again, she's a fantastic writer and she's going to be discussing her financial independence journey along with her new book, Wallet Activism. So with that, Tanya, welcome to the show. Hey, Tanya, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Of course. No, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about financial independence, which you're very familiar with. You've written a book about it. You blog about it as well. Um, but we're also going to be discussing your new book, Wallet Activism, which I'm really excited about. So to start off, I thought we can start with a little bit about your background, um, your financial journey, and kind of how you got here to this point. Sure. I always say this is the most boring thing um, I could talk about, which I'm sure that's a great way to to start the show. Uh, but I I think when it comes to finances, boring is is okay. Um, and so the truth is that my husband Mark and I set a goal of retiring early when we were in our. I was in my early 30s. He was in his mid 30s, and honestly, so much of it was just about automating. So it was about 
trying to hide a big chunk of our paychecks from ourselves so that we were, you know, maxing out our 401ks at work and then trying to boost our taxable investments at the same time with each raise we got or each bonus we got. We just increased the amount that came off the top of each paycheck. So we never missed that money. And we paid off our mortgage in the meantime because that was an important component for us. And you know, it kind of just happened magically in the background because we set things up that way and we were able to retire. It's now been four and a half years, which is wild to think about. Um, But yeah, we quit at the end of 2017. I was 38. He was 41. And we've been, I guess, living that work optional life since then. And, um, you know, half pre-pandemic, half in the pandemic, it's every year has been a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So if you don't mind talking a little bit about how that's been, since we don't, we we get a little bit of the guests who are going uh, through the journey and some who have gotten to the point or or past the financial independence point. So what did it feel like once you reached that and how has it been since then? How has your feelings changed? Yeah. I mean, you know, four and a half years is a long time. And so we've had a lot of different feelings in that. Certainly when we quit, that felt really exciting and fun and it was extra fun because we got some nice press coverage about it. And that felt like a lot of people were cheering us on, which was a really wonderful feeling. And so the first year I think was definitely an adjustment. And I knew that some of that was coming. That was research I had done in advance to know, okay, you can't just subtract the biggest thing in your life and have everything be easy. You have to be prepared to redefine your identity and how you spend all your time. It changes a lot of your relationship dynamics. And even though we both retired at the same time, there was a lot of that that we had to work through. So that was really the first year, year and a half of just, okay, who are we in this new life? And then the second year, I think, was trying to settle into it of like, okay, how are we spending our time? And then, of course, after that, the pandemic hit. And I think so much since then has been really a feeling of um, gratitude that we have the flexibility that we have because both Mark and I are immunocompromised. And so for the first year before there were vaccines, we didn't go anywhere. Uh, We had to get everything delivered. And it was one of those things where it was like, thank goodness we aren't getting, you know, sort of passive aggressively talked to like, don't you think you could come back into the office or that kind of thing? (laughs) Or couldn't you go to this client meeting? And yeah, it's it's been really an interesting time to just appreciate the different things that financial independence can mean. You know, I think we like to talk about it as meaning the big adventures and the month we got to spend in France or the month we spent in Ecuador or getting to say, you know what, I want to spend my 40th birthday in Shakespeare's hometown. And we've done all that stuff and that was great. It has also meant getting to prioritize our health and safety at a really scary time. And that has been just something I'll, I'll always, always be grateful for. And, you know, I have so much empathy for folks who haven't had that flexibility. And I think that helps motivate me to see how many more folks we can get to have that flexibility so that they can really look out for those things that are important. Right, right. And that must have been, I mean, that was a difficult time for everyone, but it, sure. someone that who, who is immunocompromised, um, I can imagine how difficult that must have been. And like you said, financial independence is why I'm so passionate about it. Is it does offer you the ability to pursue your passion, to protect yourself during a pandemic, to be there for your loved ones. There's so many different benefits to financial independence, and um, you know, although it's not perfect, 
I do see the the true benefit in that. And the fire community has also been one of the the standout points of you know this whole fire movement. I do love the the people that I meet, and so um, it's great to hear that you are doing well post fi. And yeah, so talk to me a little bit about when this book Wallet Activism came about. When was this? Was this something that you were focused on while pursuing financial independence, or was it the freedom that came afterwards that really allowed you to write the book? I think the answer is really all of the above. You know, I became known in the community for writing about financial independence. And so for folks who know me that way, I think probably a book about using your financial power in all its forms to create good in the world probably seems a little bit out of left field, but that's really what I spent my whole career doing. I worked in political and social change consulting and our big focus was helping a whole variety of clients, whether they were politicians or folks in the nonprofit space or folks in government agencies trying to do different public campaigns, trying to change hearts and minds about issues and bring people around to a different viewpoint that was, in our case, more progressive. And so this is something that I've always done. I've always thought of myself as an activist. And so the idea of, in fact, writing the first book, Work Optional, was always a little funny to me. I'm, I'm sure you and many of your listeners are familiar with Vicki Robin. Um, she and I laugh about the fact that given who we are, that we're best known for books that are ultimately very capitalist and <laughs> teaching people to be better capitalists. She said, you know, it's really embarrassing, isn't it? I was like, yeah, Vicki, I, I feel you. So... Uh, I was excited to write Work Optional, my first book. I was excited to get that opportunity. That's something certainly that opened the door to write the second book, Wallet Activism, but it was never what was fully in my heart. It was just sort of like, okay, well, if if I have this opportunity to write a book about personal finance, I'm going to try to make it as purpose-driven as possible, encouraging people to think about life in terms of what you can give back, what you can contribute that isn't necessarily about work how we can help people who don't feel powerful at work feel powerful so that hopefully that can change the workforce for the better. You know, That's something I really believe that if people who are on the fire path spoke up more at work to try to make conditions better for others with less money saved, you know, less ability to walk away, that it would make the workforce better for everyone. And so I think that's, you know, a very noble goal. But that said, you know, I think wallet activism was sort of an outgrowth of a lot of thoughts that I'd been having for a long time, which is like, okay, if we have this financial privilege, how do we use it properly? How do we make sure that we're not funding bad things in the world that we don't want to support? How do we make sure that we're funding the things that we do want to support and do want to see more of? And a lot of those questions, I'm, I'm sure folks know, aren't easy to answer. It's not easy to say, okay, like, what's the best place to get my groceries? And especially if you start talking with folks who are interested in financial independence, um, I say this lovingly, but we tend to be cheapskates, you know, <laughs> often trying to get the very best deal on things leads to buying things that haven't been ethically produced, you know, whether that's about resource use or exploitation of workers, it often leads to, you know, like I've seen some five people who seem very lovely when you're chatting and then they leave like a 5% tip and you go, okay, that's a person who's earning very little and you have all this money in the bank, you don't think you could leave 15 or 20%. You know, stuff like that where sometimes being a bit more generous can lead to having a more positive effect in the world. So anyway, that that is a long way of saying these were all thoughts I'd been having. And the success of the first book opened the door to write another one. And I knew pretty quickly that, you know, I wasn't sure exactly the shape I wanted it to take, but 
after I started thinking about it, after the first book came out, it coalesced pretty quickly that I wanted to be able to talk about all the different forms that your financial power comes in, that it's not just about shopping or it's not just about investing. It really is much broader than that. Right, right. So, and that's so true what you're saying. So financial independence, what I've seen as well is the same thing. It's, um, you know, you're very focused on yourself. It's almost, it's a very individual goal for you and your family. And as you mentioned, sometimes the frugality can get out of hand or the values can kind of not be there. And so that's where you need to remind yourself, you know, of the bigger goals, bigger values that you may have. So I'm guessing, is that one of the best starting points for someone who maybe wants to, you know, come out of this episode saying, how do I become a wallet activist? Like what, where can I start with so many issues that are like, they're tremendously big climate change. I mean, you know, the wage gap, there's tons and tons more, but where does somebody start? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. The the place to start is to reflect on your own values. You know, I I certainly have opinions. I have things I'd love to see change in the world, but my goal with Wallet Activism the book is not to try to tell you, okay, this is how you have to spend your money. This is how you have to invest. It's to say figure out what your values are and then let that be your guide. And so you and I could have very different views on things and you'd still find use in the book. And it's funny because I, I'm sure you'll appreciate this and the fire space, people tend to talk about values-based spending, but they don't actually mean that. When they say that, what they really mean is basing your spending on what you value. And what you value is very different from your values. And so what you value might be you value time with friends and family, and you want to prioritize that over stuff, um, for example. And, And that does hint at your values, but your values might be that you don't think other people should have to be exploited for you to have a good life, that you don't think um, Americans should be using eight times as many environmental resources as people in more low and middle income countries. For example, you know, things like that, um, that could guide you to a certain set of financial decisions. And I think the best thing is honestly, if you can combine the two, if you can think about both your values and what you value, uh, because thinking about what you value helps you cut spending out. But thinking about your values might in some cases actually lead you to spend a little bit more. But when you know that it's driven by your values, you feel good about that and it feels like the right thing to do. Yes. Um, so that's probably where what got me thinking the most is actually in the beginning of the book, because you start to realize that there is no one solution to this problem, but we can all make a difference in our own way and our based on our own values that can make a larger impact uh, nationwide, worldwide, etc. So I remember thinking to myself that, you know, I value good working conditions because this is something that I've gone through where I've had some bad working conditions in my career. So I do value good working conditions. But then I ordered your book on Amazon and I I realized how terrible that is. So it is not easy going against the system that makes it so easy for you to make the convenient choice um, and not have to really think. I mean, my my credit card is saved on Amazon. Amazon knows exactly what I want from every time I I go, you know, in there. So how do you how do you kind of you know, once you've identified your values, what would you say you can do in order to like start implementing that? For example, like for for myself or anyone else who maybe doesn't want to contribute to the um, 
conditions that Amazon has, or that's just one example, but it could be any. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to make clear to folks, like, I think it's very easy to say, okay, if this is about values, you're going to tell me I can't shop at Amazon. I can't go to Walmart. I can't go to like any big box store ever again. And the answer is no, we have to live in reality. And this is, I think it was important to me that the book be based in reality and recognize that not everyone has equal choices. It was something where, like I said earlier in the pandemic, the first year of the pandemic in 2020 is when I was doing the bulk of the writing of this book. We had to get everything delivered. That meant, you know, shopping with some people who I wasn't that excited to shop with. Um, but you just have to do the best you can under the circumstances. So I think the best place to start once you sort of know, okay, here's here's where my values are, here's what I don't want to support, is if you feel able to make a big switch, if you say, okay, I'm gonna not shop on Amazon anymore, then great. You know, that's wonderful if you're able to do that. If you're not, if, you know, for any number of reasons, you don't have a lot of choices, you know, in these conversations, we often leave out people who are disabled and don't have great mobility or people who don't have cars and maybe don't have endless choices about where they're going. You know, I don't want those folks to feel left out of the conversation. So if it's for you about scaling back and saying, okay, how much did I spend on Amazon last year? Can I try to cut that in half this year? And then maybe next year you try to cut that in half again. Or, Honestly, you know, the the easiest thing to do with most of the decisions that are consumer-based, where it's about buying something, the best thing you can do is simply buy less. Or if you buy something, look into could you buy a digital version versus a hard copy? I I understand with books and I love seeing people (laughs) hold up a book that I wrote. So uh, there's no critique of that. Um, And the book is FSC certified. It's all recycled paper. (laughs) Um, So you can feel good about that. I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I pushed for that. Uh, but you know, it's it's about making progress and making improvement. And then one other thing I'll add, just with kind of the Amazon and Walmart ecosystem of the world, and this really goes for any big big retailer, is if you can avoid shopping at peak periods, you can also have a big impact on worker conditions. So we know that the injury rate is much higher around Black Friday and the holiday shopping period. We know it's high around Prime Day, which is like that invented um, sale day in the summer that Amazon does. Um, but you'll see lots of stores doing this now. I know Wayfair is doing like a Wayfair Day or Wayfair Weekend or something like that. So if you can avoid shopping at the peak big sale times, you're already not adding more demand for workers to be hurrying at times when they're already getting injured at higher rates. So things like that, um, if you can just avoid peak anything, that's generally pretty good. Because like, for example, if you buy flowers around Valentine's Day or Mother's Day, those flowers have a much bigger environmental impact than they do if you buy other times of year um, because of just sort of the, the dynamics of that, which I talk about in the book. So avoiding peak periods as much as you can is just generally a good process and practice both for workers and for environmental issues. So that's a great place to start if you feel like you can't make a lot of changes, but you could make that one, do that. Yeah, that's something that is a good point. Very good point. And actually, not only does it do those benefits that you mentioned, but buying at peak periods is when you have to buy at the most expensive time. So it usually is going to hurt your uh, wallet uh, just that much more. So that's a good, very good tip. Or even if it's a a good deal, it often is when you might do those impulse buys because the sales look really good. And so then in total, you end up spending more. So yes, absolutely. It's, it's good for your wallet too. Yeah. One thing that I, and I hope I'm not going too much into the book. I don't want to give it all away and I'm definitely not. Uh, (laughs) The book is great. It has a lot of information. So 
But one part in it that caught my eye as well, um, that really hit home was the idea of not being a perfectionist about it. And can you describe a little bit more about what you meant when you when you wrote that part and um, yeah, and what that means for you? Yeah, so I I think of this in terms of gatekeeping oftentimes, which is something that we see in the personal finance space a ton. And one of the reasons why I've actually argued that we should get rid of the fire movement and split it up because I just think that there is so much energy now behind folks who are very salesy, trying to pitch you their eBooks at every turn, pitch their courses, all of which are unvetted. And you're supposed to spend all this money without knowing anything about what you're getting or what these people's qualifications are. But you know, there's a lot of judginess that's coming with that. And a lot of like, well, if you aren't doing this, what are you even doing here? Or if you're, you know, it reminds me of the like Dave Ramsey, if you have any debt, you're not allowed to eat at a restaurant mm-hmm. ever. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> what world do you live in, buddy? <laughs> I know. And that's uh that's a big thing in the in the personal finance space. I think a lot of people are recognizing that and including myself. And we've moved away from Dave Ramsey, but you're right. As time goes on, I've seen the same thing in the fire movement, which is a little bit of judginess, almost a, an elitist type of conversation. And and I don't appreciate that, but I'm trying to bring it back to the to the the roots, you know. It's great. It's I mean, it's so important because the fundamentals here I think are really good and are about giving people choices. But I think you even saw like years ago, even before we got this big overtone of judginess, there was this thing that I think the tone was very much set by Pete, um, Mr. Money Mustache, talking about craft beer all the time. And a lot of those guys in Colorado getting really into the, the beer swaps and everything. And I think that there wasn't recognition, for example, of the sexism that was involved in this because it became okay to spend money on craft beer. But if you did something like spent money on makeup or shoes or, you know, things that women might enjoy, well, that's just totally wasteful. I'm like, well, isn't the whole point that everyone's supposed to decide for themselves what is worth it? And so I think that is really just kind of a worldview that I go around with of looking for, okay, who's trying to tell others they're not doing it well enough. Um, And you see that in personal finance. We've just talked about lots of examples, but you see it in other activist spheres too. So, you know, for example, I talk in the book about the zero waste movement, which is the idea of trying to get the garbage that you produce down to zero. Um, I think that that, because it's even called zero waste, it has this unattainable goal in the title. Um, And a lot of the things that you see people do to try to achieve that are dishonest, where it's like they're still generating waste. They're just not bringing it home. That just has always rubbed me the wrong way, but also I tried to live that way and it's really unattainable, you know, even for people with extra time to spend and a car and no kids to entertain at the grocery store. It's still an incredibly hard thing to try to shop in a zero waste way and it's often more expensive than just buying a little bit of packaging. And so all of that stuff to me serves to make people feel excluded from movements. You know, if if someone says, "Oh, you're a fool if you buy a house because renting you always come out ahead." Then anyone who's bought a house is going to feel like, "Well, so I'm not welcome." Or you do the opposite. "Well, you're throwing your money away if you rent, uh you have to buy." Like, why why do we have any absolute statements at all? Let's all mm-hmm. focus on getting better together as much as we can and sort of like mind your own business, you know, <laughs> like don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Try to improve in your own life. I mean, that to me is just like a healthy worldview. And so I really wanted to make it very clear in the book because I think it would be easy to pick up a book like this and think that I'm telling you, here are 80 things you have to do. And if you don't do them all, you're a failure. <laughs> and that's just, that's one, that's not productive. But two, that's not even, that's not true. That's not how I feel. 
Yes, yes, of course. And some of those feelings, um, it's starting to bubble back up because, you know, I did feel <laughs> like uh, I had to make my own coffee, for example, at the beginning of my fire journey because I'm trying sure. to save every penny and I can't go to Starbucks because that's a waste of money and I could make four or five coffees for the cup, you know, same price. Um, until one day I said, what am I doing? If I want a cup of Starbucks coffee, I can afford it and I can give myself that luxury. And, uh, you know, so I started to, you know, incorporate that into not necessarily a daily routine, but every once in a while on a Friday or something, if I felt giddy, I would get myself a nice coffee. Um, so I think you're right. I think absolute statements really do keep people excluded and they actually make people feel like failures when they mm -hmm. don't achieve that perfection that you know you were discussing in the book that that's impossible to achieve basically so i love that you mentioned all of that and one thing that i've struggled myself which i'm hoping you can provide some perspective because what i want the audience to do hopefully with this episode is to make some changes um so we might discuss a few more simple changes that you can make but really values and, and identifying where you want to be better and improve the world. I want them to take that from this episode and hopefully do something, one or two action steps. Um, but what I've found is that's been frustrating for myself is, for example, I walked to work a few uh, a while ago and I still do it from time to time. And that's just to lessen my carbon footprint and, you know, save money, et cetera. But then I would see a big pickup truck just roar by me. And I would say to myself, why am I doing so much when there are people in this world that don't necessarily care as much as I do? How do you feel about that? Or do you ever feel that? And how do you, how do you move past that? Of course, I feel that. I, I don't think you can live in the world and not <laughs> feel that, uh, be paying attention and, and care about things. You know, I, I think we have to remember what the goal is. And the goal is to live in a world in which we can continue to live in the world, you know, in which it's still survivable uh, because we haven't completely destroyed the climate. We haven't used up all the resources. We haven't burned out all the people who are having to work way too hard in bad working conditions to provide the things that we like to have. And so everything that that you do, everything that I do, that stuff adds up you know, even if other people are doing the wrong thing or things we wish they weren't doing, we can undo some of that by lessening our own impact. So I think if anything, we can use those moments of frustration as as moments to give us extra resolve to act. You know, I think the reality is, and and kind of the core ethos of the book is that a whole bunch of people are constantly lying to you. And I know that that sounds conspiratorial and it's not a conspiracy theory book at all. Don't worry. But it's sort of like recognizing that corporate America is constantly lying to us. Like you, you use the term carbon footprint. You know, that was a term that was popularized by British Petroleum, one of the largest emitters of carbon pollution in the world, one of the largest spenders on lobbying against climate change legislation in the world. And they popularized the idea of the carbon footprint basically to make you feel bad for your impact so that you wouldn't hold them accountable. And there is so much out there that's like that, that if you give up, if you feel like, oh, what's the point in me doing this? You're feeding into what corporations want you to do, which is to feel helpless and refuse to hold them accountable. And so this idea of like, you'll see people uh, cite this stat all the time of 100 corporations emit 70% of global emissions. 
And that's true. But you'll see people say that and then say, so what does it matter if I recycle or not? Like, well, one, who do you think is funding those corporations? It's you. It's it's me. It's our dollars uh, that we're giving them to buy their stuff. Um, but that is really a distraction by sort of posing it as an either or because it isn't either or. It's we need to hold corporations accountable. We need to vote for lawmakers who are going to be tougher on them. But we also need to change our own habits and change our own consumption patterns because it's all of the folks in the wealthy countries consuming at the levels that we consume at who are causing all this demand, who are causing all this environmental degradation, causing the climate crisis, causing workers around the world to be exploited. And so we have to own that part too. So I think it's it's recognizing that very powerful, very wealthy people want you to feel like, oh, what's the point? And so the best way you can fight back is to refuse to feel that way. And that's that's what I try to think about when I see those big trucks spewing that ugly black smoke. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. And and you're so right. I think that sense of hopelessness is what they want. And Mm-hmm. You, you got, we got to fight. I mean, this is not going to be easy if it was easy. These, you know, these corporations aren't going to make it easy from what I've learned. And um, so, yes, you're right. We have to fight for our world and the world that we believe in and, and we want for our kids and grandchildren. So let's start with some of the easy ways, let's say uh, in either bankings, we spent, we talked a little bit about spending. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about like where we bank. Is that uh, an important factor? Yes. Oh, I'm I'm glad that you brought this up. I was going to if you didn't, because um, I think banking is one of the things that we should be talking about, but really don't. You see a ton of talk about responsible investing, but very little talk about responsible banking. And I think that we're doing a disservice to the world by not talking about it because where you bank has a direct impact on a lot of different things. So for example, if you care about fossil fuel emissions, which are the leading cause of climate change, then it probably isn't great news to know that if you bank with a big corporate bank, um, we know who they all are, uh, that the money sitting in your savings account is being lent out to fund new fossil fuel projects. And they love to run these ads. Uh, I screenshotted an ad the other day on Twitter of Bank of America touting all their green investments. It's like, yeah, you're still one of the top five funders in the world of new oil and gas projects. So there's no amount of solar you can fund that's going to undo all the damage you're also funding. Uh, but banks love to talk a big game on, on their their clean energy. Meanwhile, they're continuing to make fossil fuel projects possible. Because if you think about it, if, if consumers withheld all their support from the big banks, there would be very little funding available for new oil and gas projects. And that would drive investment in solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, all the different cleaner energy forms real fast if no one was willing to fund fossil fuels. And so, yes, it's frustrating that we don't have better laws and that our policymakers aren't doing more to speed this process of converting to cleaner energy. But I mean, it's going to happen one way or the other. And we as consumers and bank customers can have a big say in that. Um, you know, you think about like if, if Chase, which is the biggest funder of fossil fuels uh, in the world, if they were to lose 5% of their deposit account customers, do you think that they wouldn't notice? Like, of course they would notice. Of course the shareholders would notice. The board of directors would notice and say, what is happening? You need to take action. And so the best thing you can do if you're with one of those big banks is to leave, but to tell them why. Tell them why you are closing your accounts. Um, And then move your money instead to a credit union. Bonus points if you can find a community development credit union, which specifically funds um, disinvested community projects rather than funding like big corporate stuff. 
and other options too. There are some different nonprofit banks with environmental focus. Uh, there are Black-owned banks, banks owned by people of color, community banks. You've got tons and tons of options these days, and they all have the same you know, online services and apps and all that stuff. So it's painful one time, but switching banks is an incredibly powerful thing. And I spent a lot of time talking about it just because I really want to make that point. If there's one thing you do today, if, sw- if you can switch banks, that's huge. So yeah, banking, big. But but likewise, if you're looking for a mortgage, if you're looking for a small business loan, you know, being picky about who you'll do business with and whose profits you want to feed into, you can make all those same considerations of looking at who's funding fossil fuel projects or whatever issue you care about. You can tell I care a lot about climate, but if you care about something else, there is most likely a website out there that will tell you who is funding the bad projects that you don't want to support, and then you can avoid those banks. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, these local banks or... Yeah, just not major banks. They're still FDIC insured and of course. they've still got all the protection and benefits that the big ones offer to you. For sure. For sure. That's such a good point. Awesome. Yeah, that's something that I know some people can be a little weary about where they keep their money. It's a big you know, deal. So just so you know, it's still FDIC insured. And that's something that I'm going to be looking into as well. It's, I've been inspired to uh, make that switch. It's difficult, like you said initially, but once you get it done, just like anything, it's on automatic after that. Perfect. So thank you so much for that tip. And now moving on to investing, just another major aspect that I think will be important to the financial independence community, but anybody really, how do we make an impact with our investment dollars? Is that something we've heard a lot about the social, uh, what is it? The Socially responsible index funds. The environmental, social, and governance funds. That's the the current buzzword. There you go. So what do you think about that? Is that a real solution? So I might surprise folks right now. I, I don't think responsible investing is as great as it's made out to be for a bunch of reasons. One, you know, a lot of the funds that are socially responsible are just straight up not actually socially responsible. You'll look at it and you'll see, oh, there are tobacco companies in here, or there are gun companies, or there are fossil fuel companies. That happens a lot because it might be a company that treats its employees really well and pays them properly and has really good transparency on its corporate governance or has a really diverse board. You know, There are all these different things that companies can do to game the ESG score so that they can get included in things. Or There have even been companies who are mining companies who spin off their coal mines to a separate division, and now they can somehow qualify as a socially responsible company. (laughs) Just go like, this is just a shell game, you know, or in some cases where companies have sold off their coal mines, then private equity firms just race and buy those things up. So it's not actually resulting in less ownership of harmful stuff. So I think it's important to be cautious of ESG. It's also just currently an unregulated term, and that's likely to change in the future, but I don't think we should expect it to be an incredibly stringent term that excludes whole sectors, um, as it probably should. So that's one part of it. Um, the other part is that you know when you own a share, it's not the same as directly giving that company money. So you are helping to keep the share price higher, which does enrich its executives. It does give it more collateral to be able to borrow to fund business activities or expansion. So there are negatives that go along with owning shares in a company that you don't feel good about. You also then profit off their dividends, which 
might not let you sleep well at night, uh, depending what they do. You know, I've I've been asking Vanguard for years to have gun-free funds because I don't like that after mass shooting events, the share price for the gun companies tends to go up, not down. And then thus we all do well. You know, that doesn't, I don't like that. I don't feel good about that. But I think another way to look at it is if you own stock, which I assume most people listening right now do, then you have the ability to push for change because you're a partial owner of companies or a partial owner of funds who are managed by big companies who have a lot of sway. So you can use that leverage to write to, you know, a lot of people in FI land love Vanguard. So you can write to Vanguard and say, hey, here's how much money and assets I have with you. And I feel that you are not actually looking out for my needs as a shareholder by ignoring X, Y, or Z factors, you know, by not paying enough attention to climate, by not advocating for these things when you go to shareholder meetings, because Basically, Vanguard and BlackRock are the, the biggest players in the room at every shareholder meeting, no matter what, no matter what stock you're talking about. And they very rarely speak up. And we can push to change that. Same if you own individual stocks directly, then you can actually go to the shareholder meetings for companies and say, hey, I want you to put more climate-focused people on the board. I want you to get rid of this CEO who just doesn't really care about worker exploitation and says it's fine to underpay people. Um, There are a lot of different things that you can fight for. And I would love for us to push the conversation more in that direction. But in terms of if you just want to have the most responsibly sourced portfolio possible, the best thing that you can do is a newer approach called direct indexing where it's like buying an index fund. So you'd, you'd buy something as a basis like the S&P 500 or the total US stock market, you know, whatever. And then you can actually go in and subtract individual stocks from it. And that's not widely available yet, but I think it's going to pretty quickly ramp up. And it wasn't launched for socially responsible aims. It was, it was launched for people to just be able to you know, tweak their portfolio. But I think that it has a lot of the benefits of indexing and being broad and diversified, being relatively low fee, but still giving you a lot of control. So that's what I'm I'm most excited about in the responsible space. But I think in the meantime, if you're not able to shift to funds that feel really good and feel genuinely ESG, then use your power as a shareholder to push for change. That's That's a big thing we can all do that I don't think we talk about nearly enough. Yeah, great point. And what was that um, term, that new solution term? Direct indexing. All right. So maybe that's something we can reach out to our brokerage companies and ask for, or yeah. M1 Finance or Robinhood. I know there's relationships there that you know can be can you know, just be established, and maybe that can be brought to a more mainstream investment. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And um, I also thought that maybe even if you're not investing in the companies that you want to, let's say you are still invested in Amazon or Big Oil or something like that. You can t- take advantage of the profits that they're giving you and maybe making a difference on your own with that money, maybe trying to, I guess, make a change on their behalf, even though it's not really on their behalf. But you know what I mean? If, if they're uh, giving out the dividends, you can do good in your own community. And I guess in some indirect form, that's Amazon helping you make a difference in your community, I guess. Yeah. You know, I... I don't want to go too far down the road of sort of like excusing because I think everybody thinks what they're doing with their own money is good, sort of regardless. <laughs> um, you know, and I think it's easy to excuse a lot of things that we we should probably have a look at and try to change. But yes, if you're making a big effort to invest in your community or to you know invest in under resourced or disinvested community projects, and you're doing that with the help of dividends from Exxon and Amazon and McDonald's, like great. <laughs> 
I can't, it's, I'd rather have those dollars in your pocket doing that with them than going into, you know, the pocket of someone who's just trying to get richer and take advantage of more people. Right. True. True. All right, Tanya. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that. So again, some big takeaways that I got at least at the end here are banking. You can switch banking. Uh, you're, you're, you know, from a big bank to a more local credit union, and uh, that has a tremendous benefits. And with investing, we can look for different solutions like that, that direct investment solution, or just put your money in the uh, direction where you want it in the corporations that you. Uh, think are doing well or in the small businesses that you think are doing well. Um, so some final questions, where can people find you? What do you have coming up? Anything exciting? You know, what do I have coming up is I have no idea, which is wonderful. Um, <laughs> I am working in my garden and sharing info on social and occasionally blogging. And that feels really great because uh, I am retired after all. Uh, so folks can find me on my blog, ournextlife.com. I'm only posting there every month or two these days, but you can see all the stuff that I'm sharing and link to me on Twitter and Instagram where I'm at our underscore next life. And you can get links to the book purchase. So you can buy wallet activism, work optional, which of course you can get them in at Amazon, but you can also get them at your local indie bookstore. You can get them on bookshop.org. And one tip I'll just share for folks who want to try to move away from Amazon uh, particularly with books, is I keep hearing people say, well, but I have a Kindle, so I have to buy it on Amazon. That's not true. You can buy ebooks at um, bookshop.org. You can buy them on IndieBound. You can buy them on a lot of different sites, including directly from many indie bookstores if you look at their website. And then with audiobooks, you aren't stuck with Audible either. You can buy them from Libro.fm, which actually then kicks a chunk of the purchase price back to the local indie bookstore of your choice, um, similar to what you can do with bookshop.org. So there are lots and lots of ways that you can get books and get them at a discounted price uh, without having to support Amazon. But of course, if you do Amazon, just leave a review and then you're uh, you're helping the author out. So you're sort of trying to restore a little balance. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm definitely going to do that myself. And thank you so much, Tanya, for... Uh taking the time. I'm going to include all those links that you mentioned. So anybody who's listening and wants to take advantage of those uh, options, go ahead and take a look at the description below. But thank you again, Tanya, for coming on and sharing your wonderful insight. And you're a fantastic writer. So I hope you continue to write at least. Thank you so much. That, that means a lot. And it's been a blast talking to you. All right. So that was a fantastic episode, I thought. And some key takeaways from the show that I just wanted to go over was the banking part where Tanya uh, motivates or, or recommends us to look into local credit unions or black owned businesses, uh, banks, or any other sort of locally owned bank rather than the typical uh, major banks and, and see if you can switch. Uh, this is a challenge that I'm going to take up and I'm going to keep you guys in the loop and let you know how that goes. But right now I'm currently banking with a major bank and I've been there for decades or a decade maybe because they got me right out of college with a free shirt or a Frisbee or something. So I've never given it much thought, but I'm going to go ahead and switch to a local credit union and I'm going to see how that goes and I'll let you guys know. So I think that that's very important as she said that money funds different activity and I want to be on the right side of that. So that's going to be my personal goal. And I hope you guys take 
action as well. It may not, it doesn't have to be that, but if it could be anything on the spending or uh, earning a few money, I have an article about that, about a few money and how that allows you to be a, a whistleblower, for example, in a corporation that is not doing the right thing. You don't have to be afraid to speak out. And the other part is investing in the companies that you believe in, you believe that are doing the right thing. And I know that's a bit difficult right now with index funds, but maybe you can invest in an index fund and then the profits that you get from major companies that you might not agree with, you can put that towards a good cause. And in, in the same effect, you're still doing a good thing. So I hope you got a lot out of the episode and I wish you luck on your financial independence journey. Stay tuned for more episodes coming out weekly. We are in full effect of season two, Inspire to Fire. And subscribe and I hope you share this episode with a friend. Share the whole podcast with a friend, the back catalog. It'll be great. They can start from the first episode and catch up with you. So that's what I wanted to share with you guys. And lastly, if you have any ideas for the show or if you want to be a guest, go ahead and email me at questions at inspiredafire.com. All right. Till next time, guys. Thank you.